Well, this morning, I wanna, I wanna begin by making a very simple and yet true observation. Absolute truth has become a thing of the past. What I mean is that in our day, truth is whatever you want it to be. There are masses of people out there in our country and in our world that are believing lies because they've determined that that lie is truth for them. Today, more and more people are treating absolute truth like a hot potato. It's not something that they want to deal with because it's not politically correct to do so. I guess that you could say absolute truth has fallen on absolute hard times. In fact, a survey done by the Barna Research Group proves this. It says that three-fourths of all people, teenagers on up, don't think there is such thing as absolute truth. And, and, and this is a Christian organization, folks. So my assumption is there are Christians that were interviewed for this survey. But you know, when you think about it, th this attitude, there's really nothing new about it because mankind has been avoiding truth from the very beginning. If you doubt me on that, then go back and reread Genesis chapter three. Now, the reason that I bring this all up to you this morning is because a Roman leader in Jesus' name, in Jesus' day, excuse me, embraced this, this truth-avoiding mindset. And his name was Pontius Pilate. Do you remember the conversation that Pilate had with Jesus just hours before the cross? Jesus stood before Pilate and he told him that he had come into the world to testify to the truth. And Pilate's response was in the form of a, of a sarcastic question, what is truth? But Pilate's words were, were really more of a statement than they were a question. He didn't even wait for a response because he was making fun of Jesus. He was making fun of his mission. He was inferring that it was foolish and naive to believe that such a thing exists called absolute truth. Of course, as Christ followers, we know that Pilate was absolutely wrong. We build our lives upon the conviction that absolute truth exists. And we know how foolish and how naive it is to believe otherwise. It's like a, a man who heard his friends say, there are two sides to every question. And the man replied, yes, there are two sides to every question, just like there are two sides to a sheet of fly paper, but it makes a huge difference to the fly which side he chooses. <laughs> you ever feel like a fly stuck in paper? So this morning, as we continue in our study of John's gospel, we're gonna look at the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate. And as we study this text, what I wanna do is I wanna point out three absolute truths that, that are clearly seen as a result of, of this verbal exchange. But before I do that, let me tell you a little bit about this man, this Roman procurator named Pontius Pilate. Historians tell us that Pilate was a native of Seville, Spain. And as a young man, like many of his peers, he joined the legions led by Germanicus in the war on the Rhine. 
And after peace had been secured, he went to Rome to plan his future and his fortune. And it was there that he met and married Claudia Procula, who was the granddaughter of Emperor Augustus. This is the same Augustus who demanded a census in the year that Jesus was born. Now, I don't know if there was any love to be found in that marriage, but for an ambitious man like Pilate, it was certainly uh, a, a, a very wise political move. Because as the granddaughter of the famous emperor, Claudia had connections at the highest levels of the Roman government. And with these connections, Pilate developed a personal friendship with Lucius Sejanus. He was the de facto leader of Rome during Emperor Tiberius's extended retirement on the Isle of Capri. And in 26 AD, soon after rising to power, Sejanus granted his friend Pontius Pilate one of the most coveted posts in the entire empire, procurator of, of Judea. And it was a post that Pilate held until 37 AD. And like his predecessors, Pilate uh, resided comfortably in a palace on the Mediterranean coast in Caesarea, except during Passover. He would stay in Jerusalem as he was now. His presence, you have to understand, and the entourage of Roman soldiers that came along with him helped to maintain law and order on the streets in case there was some uprising that week in Jerusalem. Now I want you to know that there is a great discrepancy found between the way Pilate is depicted in history and the way that Pilate is depicted in the Bible. In the Gospels, Pilate is uneasy. He seems afraid to please the Jewish people. But the Pilate of history was nothing like that at all. He was actually an anti-Semitic Roman to the core. In fact, his actions show us that he was an absolute wolf for Jewish blood. Prior to the events of our scripture reference that we're going to read, Pilate never made a single attempt to please the Jews, unless, of course, he was forced to. I want you to listen to how Pilate is described in a letter from Agrippa to Caligula, the emperor after Tiberius, as recorded in the writings of Philo. Agrippa writes, Pilate is unbending and recklessly hard. He is a man of notorious reputation, severe brutality, prejudice, savage violence, and murder. Philo also said Pilate was, and I quote, a man of very inflexible disposition and very merciless as well as very obstinate. To me, Pilate sounds like a cruel Nazi concentration camp commander. And all of these aspects of his character help to explain the temporary change of heart that we see in our text. I mean, it's, it's that Pilate never cared about public opinion except when his neck was on the line. And at this moment in history, in today's scripture, his neck was on the line. You see, because of his obstinate, merciless character, at the time of, of Jesus' trial, Pilate was in essence on report. That meant that he was under investigation by Rome. And I'd like to share with you some of Pilate's prejudicial and, and, and literal brutal blunders, that's hard to say, brutal blunders, things that contributed to him being in the hot seat with the emperor 
as Jesus was being brought before him. The first occurred during Pilate's first visit to Jerusalem as the brand new governor. Now, as I said, when the governor or procurator came into the the city, he came along with a detachment of soldiers. And these soldiers carried with them what they called standards, what we call a flag today. And on the top of each one of the standards or the flagpole was a little metallic bust of the reigning emperor. And what you've got to remember is to the Romans, the emperor was a god. But to the Jews, that little burst, uh, uh, bust on that standard was a graven image. To the Jews, it was blatant idolatry. Knowing this, and to keep the peace, all previous governors had wisely removed those images from the standards before they entered into Jerusalem. But Pilate stubbornly refused to do that, and this upset the Jews, and they asked him to remove them, but Pilate adamantly refused to pander, as he said, to the superstitions of the Jews. When his business was done in Jerusalem, Pilate went back to Caesarea, but a bunch of angry Jews followed him, and they dogged his footsteps for five whole days. They were humble, but they were very much determined in their request that he apologize for disrespecting their laws. Finally, he told them to meet him in the amphitheater to resolve the issue. And when they came, he surrounded them with armed soldiers. He then informed them that they did not stop their request that he would kill them right then and there. In response, the stubborn and yet very bold Jews bared their necks and they dared the soldiers to strike them, but not even Pilate could could massacre a bunch of defenseless men. So he was beaten at his own game. He had to give in and he had to agree to remove those images from the standards. This is how Pilate began his governorship. His second blunder centered on his attempts to solve a problem. In Jerusalem, water supply was inadequate. And Pilate decided that that he would show the Jews just how amazing Roman engineering and Roman builders actually are. And he did so by constructing an aqueduct to rectify the problem. Perhaps he thought this would help his damaged reputation from this horrible bad start. But aqueducts are expensive to build. So in order to fund this project, get this, Pilate raided the treasury of the Jewish temple. It would be like Governor Newsom breaking into our bank account of High Point Assembly in order to pay for one of his mandates. You'd be a bit angry about that, wouldn't you? I would too, I'd probably be in jail. (laughs) Now it is possible that Pilate may have done this with the help of, of the often hypocritical religious leaders because water was of great benefit to the temple because of all the, the cl- water that they need for cleansing because of the, the, the continual sacrifices that went on there. But the people, as you can imagine, they, they resented the use of these sacred funds, so they rioted through the streets. Well, to remind them who was boss, Pontius Pilate had his soldiers dress in plain clothes and mingle among the crowds with hidden weapons concealed in their clothing. And at Pilate's signal, the soldiers attacked the mob and many of the Jews were clubbed or stabbed to death. Once again, Pilate angered his subjects and another negative report was sent to the emperor in Rome. Well, there was a third blunder that happened when Pilate 
once again failed to connect all the dots, as I like to say. Perhaps to get on Tiberius's good side, after his prior administrative mistakes, Pilate had gold shields made to hang on the palace in Jerusalem. These shields were inscribed with the name Tiberius, and they were devoting honor and memory to the emperor. Now again, remember, to the Romans, the emperor was a god. So here was this name of a strange god inscribed and displayed for reverence in the holy city of Jerusalem. So once again, the Jews became enraged and they asked Pilate to remove them. But true to form, he refused. And because of this, the Jews went over his head and they reported the matter to Tiberius and he ordered Pilate to remove them. Well, history records one last disastrous event that actually happened after Jesus had been crucified. The year was 35 AD. That year, there was a revolt that took place in Samaria, though not a very serious one, but it is important for, to mention that, that the Samaritans had always been regarded as loyal citizens of Rome. And, and yet, through another not well thought out decision, Pilate crushed the uprising, and he did so with sadistic ferocity and numerous executions. And because of this blunder, the legate of, of Syria, he intervened, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back because Tiberius at that point ordered Pilate to come back to Rome. But while he was on his way, Emperor Tiberius died. And as far as we know, Pilate never came to judgment for those things that he did. However, tradition says that he was eventually banned to Gaul by Caligula and there Pilate suffered what sounds like emotional or a mental breakdown and he committed suicide. So I tell you all of this, and I know that was a long bit of information, but I want you to understand the guy that we are dealing with here. Uh, this is a man who was standing before Jesus on that day, and uh, he was a proud man. He was a man who was skeptical of anyone who believed in truth. For Pontius Pilate, you made your own truth. And through his political power and muscle and might, Whatever he said was the truth, in spite of the facts. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 18. If you don't have your Bible, this is all going to be up on the screen behind me. We are going to read a big portion of Scripture today, verses 28 through 40, and then we're going to continue on through John 19, verses 1 through 16. This is the famous conversation between Pontius Pilate and Jesus, whom we know as the way, the truth, and the life. John 18, verse 28 through 40, I'm reading from the New International Version this morning. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they, want, they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, 
or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. On to chapter 19, verse one. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him with a purple robe and they went up to him again and again saying, hail king of the Jews and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered, if you can believe that. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Now I wanna remind you of what's gone, up, gone on up to this point. Jesus has endured three illegal trials as I told you about last week. First, he has been judged by Annas, the former high priest. Then he was judged by Caiaphas, the current high priest, and then the Sanhedrin or council of Jewish elders. And now after having been abused and beaten to a pulp, he is dragged before Pilate. And understand Pontius Pilate is on thin ice here. He needs to avoid any further complaints to Rome in order for him to keep his appointment there. So Pilate tries to avoid dealing with Jesus completely at all. Matthew tells us that another reason that Pilate wants to wash his hands clean of Jesus as soon as possible is because his wife had a dream about Jesus. In Matthew 27, 19, it says this, when Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. 
don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great, de a great deal today in a dream because of him. So for these reasons, Pilate told the Jews to judge according to their own law. And they pushed back, saying that Jesus deserved execution, something that they were not permitted to do under Jewish law. John reminds us that this was another fulfillment of prophecy because it determined the way that Jesus was to die. The Old Testament tells us anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And that describes Jesus' position when he hung on the cross and when he bore the sins of all mankind. In Psalm 22, it describes the form of death that Jesus would endure in detail. Hundreds of years earlier, before the Romans even invented crucifixion, this is what it says in Psalm 22, 16 through 18. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Well, after conversing with Jesus about his identity and about his mission, Pilate learned that Jesus was a Galilean. And this gave him another brilliant idea. He reasoned that since Jesus was from that region, that legally his fate should be determined by King Herod. And so he sent Jesus off for his fifth trial, but that didn't work. Herod just mocked him, sent him back to Pilate for Jesus' sixth and final trial. This time, Pilate once again tries to avoid having to deal with the truth, a.k.a. Jesus, by reminding the Jews of a custom to release a prisoner every Passover. He chose the vilest one, Barabbas. An insurrection is probably what we would call a terrorist today. He was thinking that surely the people would choose to release this Galilean over this hardened criminal, but it didn't work. They chose Jesus. Now, I think Jesus must have made a big impression upon Pilate. I mean, why else would he have tried to keep him from the cross? Why didn't he just want to give the Jews what they needed and what they were calling for so that he could improve his, his, his stance with them? So in a last-ditch attempt to avoid sending Jesus to be executed, Pilate had him flogged. This is the, the beating that we talk about where that instrument called a cat of nine tails was used that literally tore flesh from his body. He thought that this would satisfy the mob, but it didn't. They demanded that, that Jesus be crucified. Matthew 27, 24 says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And get this, all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Now I have to stop and I have to point out the irony of these words. First of all, Pilate was no more innocent of Jesus' blood than I am or you are or anybody else for that matter. First John 2, 1 and 2 tells us Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then what the Jews said next was absolutely true. Jesus' blood was on them and was on their children. And it's at this point that John finally tells us 
Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So with all that as a big introduction, I wanna take a look at the absolute truth that I find that came out of that conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And I wanna point out three facts that I believe are indeed absolutely true. And here's the first one. Religion without relationship is a worthless facade. Our purpose of our religion is to bring people into a relationship with God. And if that doesn't happen, ladies and gentlemen, it is worthless. Very much like the state, the current state of Russian money once they decided to invade Ukraine, it's worthless. That kind of religion is fake. That kind of religion is false. In fact, relationless religion, it only leads people further away from God and closer to sin. We see an example of this in the behavior of the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. If you will recall at the beginning of our text, when they brought Jesus to Pilate, they stopped short, our scripture said, of entering the praetorium, or as other texts say, the palace. They did this because by walking into the palace, they would have defiled themselves and therefore it would have disqualified them from participating in the Passover. Now I want you to think of the ridiculousness of that moment, of that mindset. Here are men who are already guilty of false accusation, brutality, prejudice, illegal proceedings. All of those things had already defiled them. But their religion, it blinded them to this fact. Their fake religion turned out fake people. They were hypocrites who thought that they were staying pure enough to eat the Passover while at the same time turning in the innocent Passover lamb himself to be crucified. And we see more of their hypocrisy at the end of the text when they said to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. With that statement, in essence, they were bowing to the same Caesar whose image was on the shields and those standards, that same Caesar God, who, who that image that they had complained about in an earlier time. So can you see that their faith was just a facade? It wasn't real at all. It's reminiscent of an episode of the reality show Pawn Stars when a man brought in a violin and he asked for an appraisal. According to this man's story, he had bought a farm, a piece of property that included a house and a barn. Shortly after the, the purchase, he found a chest in the barn and he opened it up and he found a violin neatly tucked inside of it. When he dusted off the instrument, he discovered the word Stradivarius clearly inscribed in the violin. The man was hoping that the Stradivarius violin would be worth millions of dollars. However, after close examination, and an appraisal of the violin, they informed the man that it wasn't a genuine Stradivarius, and instead it was a cheap imitation that had been produced in the early part of the 1900s, worth around five to $600. And the appraiser concluded by telling the now depressed violin owner, just because something has a label, doesn't mean it's real. So understand, religion for religion's sake gives you nothing but a label. 
Religion does not lead a practitioner into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And any kind of religion that doesn't do that is an empty religion. It produces empty people and it's worthless. And that is absolute truth. And while we're on the subject, let me ask you, how real is your religion? How deep is your relationship with God? How often do you take time to talk to him? How often do you just decide to sit still and, and to listen? Something's going on and I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> How often do you take the time to be still and to be silent? Do you study his living word? I think more importantly, are you living by his living word? Remember, God hates false religion. Religion like that to him is nothing but a sham, it's a front. But he values and he treasures a heart that generally yearns to know him and, and, and to please him. I wanna read to you the, the words of Psalm 51, 16 through 17. King, King David wrote this. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. That's what God's looking for. Well, here's a second absolute truth that we see in this encounter. Jesus was innocent. And the truth is, I know that Pilate knew that. Because not once, not twice, but three times he publicly declared Jesus was innocent of any crime and undeserving of the cross but unwilling to risk a riot that would cost him his position, he gave Christ over to death. And of course, innocence was nothing new for Jesus. He was always absolutely sinless. He never sinned in thought or word or deed. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. He never yielded, not once. His record was spotless. In fact, once even, he even asked his enemies, which of you accuses me of a sin? And guess what? Not a one of them could. So it is absolutely true that Jesus went to Calvary absolutely innocent. He died for the sins of this world as God's blameless and spotless lamb. But of course, this is what makes the gospel message so awesome. That's why they call it the good news, because we're not innocent, you and I. Every moment of every day, each one of us falls short of God's holy standard. We deserve punishment. Our punishment is what Jesus bore. Do you get this? It's what he bore on the cross. And because he was absolutely innocent, he was able to die in our place. And because he had no sin debt, he could therefore pay for our debt. And that's what he did. He died so that we could be forgiven. He died so that, that we could live. Chuck Swindoll wrote this, Jesus endured six unjust trials. He was sentenced to an unjust death. But from those acts of injustice, the justice of God was satisfied. As men poured out their wrath upon Christ at his trials and his death, God's wrath against sin was completely released upon Christ at the cross. 
The truth is, you and I should have hung on that cross because we deserved what Christ didn't. And the first person to experience this reality was none other than a career criminal and insurrectionist named Barabbas. It's even possible that this man was in cahoots and the ringleader of the other two thieves who died next to Jesus on the cross that day. We don't know for sure. But I want you to try to put yourself, literally try to put yourself in Barabbas's shoes for a moment. Try to imagine what it must have been like for him that day. He was no doubt held in a prison cell that was far enough away where he couldn't have been able to hear the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. But I'm certain that he heard the screams of the crowd. So the first thing he would have heard that day was the people shouting, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And then the next thing he would have heard would have been the cries of the crowd saying, crucify him. So he's thinking he's going down, right? He thought he was going to the Roman cross, but surprisingly, that's not what happened. The jailer who opened his cell did not march him to death. He set him free. Imagine how he felt. I don't know about you, but I can't help but wonder what happened to old Barabbas. Did he leave his life a crime based upon that experience? Or did he continue living like he always lived? How did he respond when he learned that Jesus literally died in his place? And as you ponder all of that, I want you to understand something. If there is anyone that we can identify with in this story, it's Barabbas. Because like him, Jesus died in your place. Our savior took our place and he died a death that should have been ours. You know, I learned something very interesting this week about Barabbas' name. It's an Aramaic name and it can be, it's divided into two parts, Bar and Abbas. Now that may sound familiar to you because you might recall that Jesus addressed Peter in this, in, in this way when he called him Simon Bar-Jonah, which means Simon, son of John. Now we are not told what Barabbas' first name is, only his last name, which literally means son of a father. But some traditions say that his first name was Yeshua, or what we pronounce as Jesus. You see, Jesus was a popular name in that day. It was another form of the name of Joshua. And a lot of Jewish parents wanted to name their sons Joshua after this famous Jewish hero. This is why some translations, Pilate refers to Jesus as Jesus who is called Christ to distinguish him from the many other men who carried that name. In fact, some of the most ancient Manuscripts of Matthew's gospel say that this was Barabbas' first name. These manuscripts have Pilate saying, whom shall I release, Yeshua Barabbas or Yeshua Christ? And it makes sense that the people who copied these manuscripts over the year might have left that detail out because it would almost feel blasphemous to have Jesus' name associated with a hard criminal, hardened criminal like Barabbas. In any case, I think that it is interesting to note that if the old manuscripts of Matthew's gospel account are correct, then Jesus, son of 
the father died in place of Jesus, son of a father. And as son of a father, myself and yourself, Jesus was as much my substitute as he was for Barabbas. He bore my sins and he died my death. Like Barabbas, I was dead, dead in my trespasses and I was dead in my sin. That is until Jesus' crucified body released that blood of, of substitution. Just like Barabbas, I was condemned to die until Jesus took my place. It should have been me on that cross. It should have been you on that cross. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is absolute truth. But thank God we didn't have to go to the cross. And that leads me to the third piece of absolute truth that I see from this story. You cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. Pilate tried every trick in the book to avoid from, from having to make a decision about Jesus, who was and is the embodiment of truth. He tried to pass that decision on to the Jews and then on to Herod. But in the end, he had to decide for himself. Pilate said he washed his hands of Jesus, but he couldn't do that any more than you and I could. We all have to decide one way or the other, what will we do with Jesus? You cannot wash your hands of this one. It is impossible for anyone to be neutral about Jesus. We are either for him or we are against him. We either accept him as savior of the world or we reject him. Because that's the way it is with absolute truth, ladies and gentlemen. Truth always demands a response. Liz, will you come forward? Help me close this down. I'd like to ask everyone to stand to your feet, if you would. So there's a question that is dying to be asked this morning, and, and it is simple. What have you decided to do about Jesus? Do you believe he is the son of God and the only way to God the Father? Or do you just think he's another historical figure who was a good man? That's the kind of truth the majority of the world believes. But nothing could be further from the truth. No doubt Jesus was a good man, but he was so much more. Everything he said was absolute truth. Jesus lived a sinless life and he loved and he healed and he saved and he redeemed all the while he was with us. And he is the only one, and I hate to even call him this, he was the only religious figure who defeated death and the grave by resurrecting on that first Easter. But you know, today, if you go to the grave of Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius, you know what you're gonna find there? All these religious leaders throughout history, their bodies are there. Their bodies are down in the ground, but not Jesus. He was raised with resurrection power, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and all he's waiting for is a nod from God the Father, and he's gonna come, and he's gonna take us home. And he's gonna take us home so that we can live eternally in the presence of God, in a place where there's no tears, there is no pain, no sorrow, 
no death, no confusion, no, no uh, corruption, no war. It's gonna be a place of perfect peace. And he awaits those who will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That's why we're called Christians, because of our Lord, he is Christ. You know, I said two, about two weeks ago that I believe a lot of people, because we live in a Christian nation, call themselves Christian. But you have to understand something. In order to be a Christian, it requires an act of your will. You must invite Jesus into your life. And if you've never done that, I implore you, you really need to do so. You don't become a Christian by hanging around with other Christians, and you don't become a Christian by going to church, though both of those things are, are really, really good things. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You must first believe in the absolute truth that Jesus is the Son of God who can save you and is Lord of all, and then you secondly confess that with your mouth and you do that through prayer. And when you do, you become a Christian. The Bible says that he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The Bible says that you will become a new creation. And I wanna give you the opportunity this morning to receive salvation through Christ. Because here's another absolute truth for you this morning. You cannot afford to be on the wrong side of this. You can't. The stakes are just far too high. And if you're the gambling type and you think to yourself, well, I'll just roll the dice on this one, you're gonna make the biggest mistake of your life. You of all people as a gambler should know you never win. You're indebted to whatever it is you're gambling. You may win every once in a while, but if you add up your earnings through your life, you're in a deep hole. So if you're a gambling person, you're already thinking wrong and you're really thinking wrong about this one. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's talking about your heart, the door of your heart. He said, if anyone hears my voice and opens that door, he says, I'll come in. Because Jesus is a perfect gentleman. He doesn't force himself on anyone. He comes by invitation. And to become a Christian, you must invite him in. It is so simple. In case you haven't noticed, ladies and gentlemen, I talked a little bit about this this morning, and boy, the songs today tied in so well with that. It's amazing how those things work out. Scott didn't have a clue what I was gonna say at the beginning of this service, but in case you haven't noticed, the world and our country is becoming unhinged. Sin has taken its toll. It's horrendous. Corruption abounds everywhere. And it's all driven by greed, which is one of those ugly sins. But you know what? It's okay. Because Jesus predicted all of this. It's a more reason, all the more reason for you to accept him now because he's coming soon. And all you need to do to be ready is to make sure that your heart is in alignment with his. I wanna lead you all in a prayer this morning rather than open up this altar. It's called a prayer of salvation. If you pray the words of this prayer with sincerity in your heart, 
and you mean those words as you speak them. Jesus will hear you and you will be saved. You'll receive salvation. And I want everyone to repeat these words after me, even if you're already saved. And I want you to do this as to encourage those who desperately need to pray this prayer. So would you all bow your heads right now with me? Bow your heads in prayer and repeat these words with me, if you will, loud and strong. Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the only name whereby salvation comes. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I invite you to be the Lord of my life. And I'm asking for a fresh start. And God, help me to live a life that honors you for all the many things you've done for me. Today, you are my Lord and I am your child. And I will serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. prayed that prayer and you meant it. We have a ministry here, which I talked about at the beginning of the service. It's our discipleship ministry. We want to help you in your journey as a Christian. We don't want you to just get saved and then let you just go floating away. We want you to draw closer and start an intimate relationship with the Lord. Allow his Holy Spirit to direct you in your life. These classes, the first one is called First Steps. Great name, huh? For the first one. You can enter at any time. It's 13 weeks. It continues. You can jump in at any time. Once you're done with 13 weeks, you'll receive a certificate, and we give you a Bible. We give you a custom Bible. Rhonda stitches your name on it on a Bible cover, and we want you to continue to study the Word of God. But wait, there's more. It doesn't end there. We have a Next Steps class. I sound like the guy on TV, don't I? We got the Next Steps class, and we've got another class after that. There's four now, right, Ralph? We have four classes to engage you in the Word of God, find out what it means to be a believer in Christ. Yes, you've made the commitment today to become a believer, but there's so much more God wants to do in and through you. You are just now scratching at the tip of the iceberg of what it is that God wants to do in your life. And we would hope that you would allow us to come alongside of you and help you in your journey, your Christian journey. I know I just prayed, but bow your heads with me one more time. I wanna pray to close this service. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that Jesus took my punishment, the punishment that was deserving of me and everyone in this room. What a precious gift you have given us. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for your spirit, which guides and directs us. And thank you that we can see this clearly lived out and we see written in your word and we are reminded of it time and time again. God, I thank you for my church family, and, and I pray if there's anyone here today who did not repeat those words with us, that, Father, you would just continue to deal in their heart until which time comes where they feel comfortable to pray it themselves, and that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. And, Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us, the, the steps we take the places we go, the conversations that we have, Lord, that they would be conversations that build people up and not tear them down. 
that we would be shining lights in a very dark world, so much so that people would wanna know what it is about us that's different. And then you open that door and we share your goodness with them. Father, I'm gonna pray as I do every week that you would provide a divine encounter for each one of us. Let someone come into our path this week and give us the opportunity to tell them about Jesus and invite them to come to Easter service with them so that they can hear the true gospel of Jesus' resurrection and what it means to you and I. Father, I also pray that between now and the next time we gather together, you would keep us safe from accidents, keep us safe from any diseases that may befall us so that we can join together as a family and worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. And thank you for the lives that were changed today, both here and online. We ask you to go with us. And as we go, Father, let us go in your love. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here.